This broadcast of Moby Lives Radio is brought to you by Wind Publications, publishers of Missing Mountains, edited by Kristen Johansson, Bobby Ann Mason, and Marianne Taylor Hall. 35 authors write about the environmental, economic, and cultural damage inflicted upon the Appalachian Mountains by mountaintop removal mining. Available in bookstores now. For further information, go to windpub.com backslash books. Intergalactic headquarters of Melville House Publishing in Hoboken, New Jersey, a.k.a. the left bank of New York City, it's Moby Lives Radio. Greetings, Earthlings. It's Saturday, the 15th of April in 2006. I'm Dennis Johnson. On today's show, we'll mark the Easter holiday by talking with Boston Globe columnist Alex Beam. We'll discuss a recent column he wrote observing that Jesus Christ is dominating the bestseller lists. But first, here's some news from the book world. Within days of fending off a plagiarism charge in a London courtroom, Dan, is that your wallet or are you just happy to see me, Brown?, is being charged with plagiarism once again. This time the charge is being leveled by an art historian from the Hermitage Museum in St. Petersburg, Russia. Mikhail Anakin says Brown stole his idea that Leonardo da Vinci's Mona Lisa painting was not a portrait but an allegory about Christianity. What's more, says Anakin, it was he, not Brown, who coined the phrase the Da Vinci Code. According to Anakin, in 1988, after he talked about his theory of the painting to a group of visitors from Houston's art museum, one of them asked if he could pass the idea along to a friend who was a writer. Anakin said yes, as long as he got credit for the idea if it was used in a book. And meanwhile, according to the Russian news service Pravda, he published his own theory in a book called Leonardo da Vinci or Theology on Canvas. Pravda says it came out in 2000 or well before Brown's book. So what does Anakin want? Well, he tells the Agence France Presse that he would like an apology and, quote, everything Dan Brown has gotten from this plagiarism, close quote. Otherwise, he says... It's back to the courtroom for Dan Brown. Federal prosecutors in the U.S. have announced they will no longer enforce a gag order against librarians in Connecticut who wanted to talk about an FBI demand for records about library patrons brought against them under the Patriot Act. According to the Act, librarians can't talk about such demands nor even reveal that they've gotten them. But now, federal prosecutors said they would give up their appeal of a U.S. District Court's decision that overruled that gag order last year. Prosecutors said they were abandoning the appeal not because it was immoral, but rather because someone had already revealed who the librarians were. And so, prosecution of the case, in addition to being Orwellian, creepy, scary, and un-American, was pointless. They didn't put it exactly like that, though. A ninth grade student in Reno, Nevada, has won a court order against his school for attempting to block his public reading of a poem in the National Endowment for the Arts Poetry Out Loud competition. The school had tried to block the 14-year-old's recitation 
because the W.H. Auden poem he selected from the NEA's list of suggested poems contained what the school deemed a profane language. According to officials from the Choral Academy of Science in Reno, a charter school, Auden's poem, The More Loving One, is profane because it includes the words hell and damn. Student Jacob Bamer Smith had been reciting the poem at other poetry competitions around the state, reports the Reno Gazette Journal, making him a strong contestant for the NEA contest, which has a top prize of a $20,000 college scholarship. Bamer Smith even got his English teacher to protest the school officials on his behalf, but school administrator Cheryl Garlock said that, quote, while in literature much leeway is given throughout the world, we are only presenting pristine language to our students in the hope that that is what they gravitate to, close quote. So Bamer Smith asked a U.S. district court to issue a restraining order against the school that would allow him to compete. Bamer Smith says he really likes that poem. Quote, I feel a real connection to it, he explained. It's asking how do you love something that doesn't love you back or how do you love something that hates you, close quote. Well, that was earlier in the week. Yesterday, a judge ruled in Bamer Smith's behalf, decreeing that, quote, when spoken in the context of a poem at a school-authorized off-campus competition and written by a nationally recognized poet, the court finds that the language sought to be censured cannot even remotely cause a disruption of the educational mission. The artist credited with revolutionizing book design in the 1960s and indelibly branding the Penguin Classics series has died at the age of 77. Germano Fascetti was the art director of Penguin and its Pelican imprint from 1961 to 1972. As critic Rick Pointer noted in an appreciation in The Guardian, the secret of Fischetti's penguin covers was his creation of a grid that, quote, dictated where every piece of type would fall. He used the sans-serif typefaces, Standard and Helvetica, for the author, book title, and series name, always in the same size and the same position above the image, which on fiction titles could be a painting, a drawing, or a photography of a piece of sculpture. The typographic style, influenced by fashionable modernist typography, was both inviting and as clear as a sheet of glass. Fischetti designed as many as 70 covers a month and employed a team of top British designers and artists, but maintained a design consistency that few companies have emulated since then because it's so difficult to sustain. As Rick Pointer observed, however, emulations of Fischetti's hallmarks are still evident, even in other areas of the culture. Pointer cites video covers for independent film distributor Artificial Eye, as well as the CD covers for the Ghost Box record label. In a move surprisingly similar to the recent stifling of a meteorological scientist by NASA in the U.S., the Environment Minister of the recently elected Canadian Prime Minister, Stephen Harper, has blocked a government scientist there from speaking publicly about a science fiction novel he published which depicts a world ruined by global warming. Harper's minister, Rona Ambrose, says author-scientist... Mark Tushingham simply didn't fill out the proper paperwork to make an appearance to discuss his novel, Hotter Than Hell. 
but critics are saying, given Prime Minister Harper's opposition to the Kyoto Accords, it's obvious why Tushingham is being blocked from public discussion of global warming. His publisher, Elizabeth Margaris of Dreamcatcher Publishing, says he had to cancel a speech as well as TV and radio appearances for the book which depicts a world in which many places have become too hot to live in and in which the U.S. and Canada have gone to war over water resources. Tushingham is, quote, being stifled, says Margaris. This is incredible. I've never heard of such a thing. Close quote. Look south, madam. The house where Charles Dickens wrote some of his most famous work, named after his death, what else, Bleak House, was badly damaged in a fire this week. The privately owned clifftop building in Kent, where Dickens wrote David Copperfield in 1850 and also worked on, yes, Bleak House, was set ablaze by, quote, discarded smoking materials, according to local fire officials. Damage was extensive, with an upstairs bedroom caving into the snooker room, according to a report in the Scotsman. And finally, one of the co-authors of the book Freakonomics, which has been on bestseller lists so long you'd think it was about Jesus or Dan Brown, is being sued by a scholar who says the HarperCollins book defames him. John Lott, Jr., the author of a study that says allowing people to carry guns lowers crime rates, is bringing charges against author Stephen Levitt, uh, although not his co-author Stephen Dubner, for writing that, quote, when other scholars have tried to replicate Lot's results, they found the right to carry laws simply don't bring down crime, close quote. Lot says the statement makes it appear he falsified his results and his lawsuit calls for the book to be blocked from further sales and not reissued until the offending statement is deleted. He also says Levitt has written some nasty emails about him, but there's no word on why he's only suing one of the book's authors. Meanwhile, no comment from HarperCollins, the publisher of the book, which has been on bestseller list for a year and has sold over one million copies. Levitt isn't talking about Lot's charges either. Of course not. The guy's packing. And that's news to me this week. I'm Dennis Johnson. It's Saturday, April 15th, and here's a look at the week ahead in literary history. Today is the birthday of Melville House author Dennis Lloyd Johnson. A very happy birthday to you, Dennis. Sunday is April 16th, and on that day in 1922, British author Kingsley Amos was born. Amos's first and most popular novel, Lucky Jim, was just the beginning of a long and successful career of more than 40 books. His novel, The Old, Do Old Devils, won the Booker Prize in 1986. Kingsley is also the father of author Martin Amos. Monday is April 17th, and on that day in 1885, Karen Dinnison, Baroness Blixen Feinecke, better known by her pen name Isaac Dinnison, was born in Rungsted, Denmark. A short story writer, it was Dinnison's memoir, Out of Africa, about her years spent in Africa running a coffee plantation that brought her worldwide renowned. Tuesday is April 18th, and on that day in 1958, 
a U.S. federal court ruled that poet Ezra Pound should be released from St. Elizabeth's Hospital for the Criminally Insane in Washington, D.C. A vigorous supporter of Benito Mussolini, Pound had worked actively against the Allies during World War II, broadcasting fascist propaganda on Italian radio. He was arrested by U.S. forces at the end of the war. When he was returned to the U.S., it was ruled he was unfit to stand trial and was held at St. Elizabeth's Hospital for 13 years. Wednesday is April 19th, and on that day in 1824, English romantic poet George Gordon, Lord Byron, died in Misolonghi in what is now Greece. He had joined the fight for Greek independence against Turkey. Legend has it a massive thunderstorm presided over his death scene. He was 36 at the time. One of his many lovers, the scorned Lady Caroline Lamb, had called him, quote, mad, bad, and dangerous to know. Thursday is April 20th, and on that day in 1841, the publication of the first ever detective story was released. Edgar Allan Poe's The Murders in the Rue Morgue first appeared in Graham's Ladies and Gentlemen's magazine. The story is generally considered to be the first in what has become a large and healthy genre. Friday, April 21st, was the birthday in 1816 of the novelist Charlotte Bronte, born in Thornton, Yorkshire, England. Bronte, sister to writers Anne and Emily Bronte, is perhaps best known for her novel Jane Eyre. And Saturday, April 22nd, is the birthday of poet Louise Gluck, born in New York City in 1943. Gluck won the Pulitzer Prize for Poetry in 1992 for her collection The Wild Iris. I'm Valerie Marians, and that's this week in literary history. I know my chicken. You got to know you a chicken. I know my chicken. You got to know you a chicken. I know my chicken. You got to know you a chicken. I know my chicken. I have Alex Beam on the line, Alex Beam, Boston Globe columnist. Welcome to Moby Lives Radio. Thank you, Dennis. And your column this week um, starts off with, uh, with a great lead. He has risen again to the top of the bestseller lists. That is, Jesus Christ is having a very good time on at least the New York Times bestseller list. Uh, can you elaborate what, uh, what titles you're thinking of here? Well, yeah, as I, as I cynically noted, um, Jesus is, is putting up excellent numbers. I mean, in a way, they're all kind of uh, Dan Brown's children, of course. Um, you know, the Da Vinci Code has been on the bestseller list, it seems, you know, since the year 1 B.C. Um, there's, it, it remains on the bestseller list along with two novels that, I mean, again, I just feel, you know, took the Da Vinci Code and ran them through their typewriters, although I certainly haven't read them. They're, they're basically Knight's Templar knockoff novels. They're also on the top 15 uh, among the fiction bestsellers, and there's a also a book that has something to do. Well, there's a book about the Holy Grail, which is of course featured uh, to a certain extent in the Da Vinci Code, and uh, there's a book about the painting, The Last Supper, which of course has our man Jesus Christ uh, front and center. Also has our man Judas, of course, lingering, lingering over Jesus's shoulder. And as you well know, it's only a matter of time before we get uh, Judas on the bestseller list. But then maybe we can talk again, so to speak. The Judas list is is. Da Vinci Code on both the hardcover and paperback bestseller list now? I believe it is. My I believe goodness. it is. 
incredible marketing decision. I mean, in a sense, I wonder. I guess it's because of the movie they felt obliged to put put out the paperback. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I I don't know. Uh, the, the hardcover still seems to be going as strong as ever. Um, well, you go on to uh, to focus beyond the obvious on two particular nonfiction titles. Uh, one our listeners have been hearing about because I've been talking about it. it's been in the news lately, which is uh, the the Jesus Papers, which is written by one of the authors who sued uh, Dan Brown in Random House for ripping off uh, one of his previous books, The Holy Blood and the Holy Grail. Um, so. Tell me about the Jesus Papers. I, I, I take it you're, you're one of the first to read it. It's just out. <laughs> yeah. What about the millions who put it at number five it's, on the bestseller it's, list? It's at number five. It's first week out? No, first week out from Harper, San Francisco. Oh, my God. It's number five. I, I, saw a, uh, I saw a reference to it, yeah, in a wire dispatch when I was in Europe a couple of weeks ago, and uh-huh. I asked Harper for it, and... Uh, yeah, it, it opened at number five. I mean, it is a, it's by Michael Bajant, right. one of the two uh, plaintiffs uh, against Dan Brown, um, obviously a co-author of Holy Blood, Holy Grail, as you say. And it's, it's an astonishing book. I mean, in the column I said it's a book about nothing. I mean, it, it really takes this kind of notion of the hollowed-out bestseller to the ultimate reductio. I mean, it, the beginning is uh, is a self plagiarism. I mean, I, I really dissolved onto the floor in laughter when footnote seven of the book turned out to footnote holy blood, holy grail. He's he's rewriting himself. It's just unbelievable. It's all he's all down in the French Abbey for the first, which is I don't know. I can't even open it up and explain to your listeners. <laughs> there's some mysterious French Abbey where all the secrets are kept, but he wrote about that like 24 years ago. And, mm-hmm. But I mean. Then we, you know, there's a chapter about Egypt. It's indescribable. But I think the question that a a reasonable person might want to know is, what are the Jesus papers? Right. And I mean, there's a whole chapter. I mean, it's sort of like a magician. It's like hide the weenie or something. There's a whole chapter about the um, the Dead Sea Scrolls. And I'm thinking, all right, the guy's a complete fraud. So the Jesus Papers is about the Dead Sea Scrolls. What you, there's like 50 pages about the scrolls, but it's not about that. The, dead, the, the Jesus Papers purportedly refers to two letters that some shadowy antiquarian dealer may or may not have shown to Michael Bajant. I mean, it, it, it is the most preposterous story. They, they, they purport- if, if I can quote your own column, it's two letters that that Christ is supposed to have written to the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council that paid off Ju- Judas. Bajan says he held the Jesus papers in his hands, but he had no idea what they said, having no, quote, familiarity with ancient languages, close quote. They are presumably still in the possession of a wealthy Israeli, quote, who had lived for many years in a large European city, close quote. And that's the, is that the extent of the identification of what these papers are? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, it's it's totally crazy. I, I know I've kind of glossed over the revelation of the false crucifixion, which is indeed highlighted in the publicity materials. And mm-hmm. I, I feel unfair to Bajan because, you know, although he's not the first, as you, you well know, be careful. Right. Um, to make the suggestion, of course, that, uh, you know, Jesus did not die on the cross. I'm actually I'm actually going to be at a Tenebrae service tonight, so I feel somewhat queasy <laughs> saying this. I'm, I'm actually, I think I'm like one, one of the last churchgoers in America. That's a bit of an exaggeration. But, um, you know, uh, so forget the resurrection because 
Jesus didn't die on the cross, right. according to this book. Right. You know, he was drugged with a, a, a sponge impregnated with belladonna and hashish, you know, and brought down and taken, I guess, to this mysterious abbey in France. I mean, it, mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. it's crazy. But that doesn't relate, of course, to the Jesus papers themselves. The Jesus papers themselves um, have something to do with uh, Jesus' attempt either to assert or deny that, that he was the Messiah, which, which is an, actually an interesting question that's hashed out in highly contradictory and paradoxical fashion mm-hmm. in the New Testament. I mean, the Gospels are contradictory. And, I mean, the great thing about the Gospels is, I guess, they, you know, they've created these lacunae for, for, for kind of charlatans like Bajan to drive their, their Brinks trucks filled with $100 bills through. Because, mm-hmm. um, anyway, just... It just goes on. It goes on and on. Well, the, an, another book that you talk about that you say is a series of dramatic revelations for the ignorant, which is, as you observe, the definition of a hardcover bestseller. Uh, you, the, the other book is uh, uh, misquoting Jesus. Um, now, what's that one about? That's uh, yeah, Bart Ehrman. Is Bart, that the author? Bart Ehrman. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's weird because I think I was a little harsh on this guy, although. It was certainly heartfelt. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm assured that Bart Ehrman, you know, is indeed a, a relatively serious, you know, professor of um, biblical study at the University of North Carolina. It's just that this, this title, Misquoting Jesus, is astonishingly offensive, and the publicity materials are offensive. And uh, another reader described the book as as slight, which um, I really think, assuming that he is a legitimate scholar, that I think these are just the footnotes from his PhD thesis, because mm. the book it really is stuff that anybody who cares about the Bible, of course, knows that, um, you know, original texts, I mean, that's simply a, a, an oxymoron where you're talking about the Bible, mm-hmm. and we all know that the, the New Testament you know, came to us in extremely shadowy ways, and indeed was, as he correctly notes, was was processed. You know, uh, for reasons of um, of political expediency, for reasons of church expediency, and he, among other things, one of his major contentions is, I mean, we know that the Bi- the Bible and the creeds were monkeyed with, um, say, you know, in the fourth through seventh centuries uh, for doctrinal reasons and for reasons of what he what is, in fact, Christian apologetics. And then he, he lays, you know, he really comes down hard on the on the poor monks, on the scriptoria, which I guess, you know, was the pre-Gutenberg uh, uh, printing press, of course, was, you know, little monks, right. uh, you know, with, uh, recreating the Bible. I guess, and they, you know, em- emperors would say, well, I want 50 copies of the Bible. And, and again, you know, Ehrman makes much about how this bishop or that bishop would take out this or that anecdote, um, from the Bible, but and then, and and I do cite. Uh, you know, I, it's funny. I went on Amazon a few months ago. There were actually, I think, as many as four, but definitely three nonfiction books all about the King James Bible. Right. And I cite. You, you mentioned one. Uh, Why does the waters? Yeah, by Benson Bobrick, who is um, I don't know the guy, but I read the book, and it's just it's lyrical. It's utterly gorgeous. Mm-hmm. And I, one of the other books about the King James Bible was by an Oxford Don and. They're actually quite well reviewed on Amazon. It led me to choose Bobrick, and um, it's a. I mean, Ehrman is is you know, it's a it's a very interesting subject. How let, let's just since you and I are literate in English, I mean, you know, it's a very interesting subject about how the mm-hmm. English Bible 
mm-hmm. uh, came into existence, and and uh, you know, and of and, and of course, I mean, it goes without saying that um, that that it's it's changed enormously. But to kind of what what Ehrman does, I meant to sort of write this, but what he does in a kind, I mean, and again, you know, I'll do almost anything for money. I think I would stand up on my hand legs and eat a fish, you know. So what he does for money is. He sets up the straw man, of course, for believing Christians that that the Bible was written by God, and then he, you know, he dramatically informs us that it wasn't written by God. Um, uh-huh. And in that Bobrick book, it's really quite moving. Of course, the King James Bible was written by by fifty. This is only one Bible, but it was you know written by by fifty you know prominent scholars right. from Oxford and Cambridge who were fluent in. Um, uh, Latin, Latin, Greek, and Hebrew, mm-hmm. and of course they themselves were working from, from in a, you, what you could call polluted texts. Mm-hmm. But Ehrman is making fun of us, you know. He's he's sort of dividing a secular Christian like myself. He's playing me off against an evangelical Christian mm-hmm. who will say, "Oh, Jesus said these things because God says He said these things," and blah. You know, oh, I, now I'm shocked to learn that there, mm-hmm. you know. Two variants of the Gospel of Mark, etc., mm-hmm. etc. I don't know. That's what I have to say. But he's 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 an actual scholar. He's an actual biblical scholar. Is he is he writing from an? Is he also evangelical or? Well, he the beginning of the book is for me this extremely tiresome. Uh, you know, I mean, you can see how his literary agent would have counseled him. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's about his tiresome conversion, if you will, from, you know, from an evangelical to an analytical Christian. Um, so in against, I guess he's saying, you know, I used to accept that this was the divine word of God, mm-hmm. but now I'm, I'm more analytical, more critical, more skeptical. Oh my gosh, look, look at this. It turns mm-hmm. out, you know, mm-hmm. so such and such monk might have done X, Y, and Z. I don't know. I mean, it, it I mean, America's a very divided place where religion is concerned, where Christianity is concerned, and I had to be careful in my, you know, writing about this. I mean, in a sense, I didn't want to, I didn't want to sort of laugh at people who who think the Bible is divinely inspired. And I think again, you know, the Jesuits could make an, a, an, a compelling case that uh, it could be both divinely inspired and subject to change at the mm-hmm. hands of man. So. Mm-hmm. Well, so much for. Professor Ehrman. Yeah, there are several other books on the nonfiction list um, that uh, I'm, I'm gathering, being you didn't focus on them, uh, either you didn't read or, or they held up better when you read them. There's a, there's a Gary Wills book, What Jesus Meant, um, and another book called uh, Home with God. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. Good title in itself. Well, Home with they're they're you know they're being published across the street. I mean, specifically, Home with God is part of a series of this guy who's having a conversation with God. So that's in a sense, when I say across the street, that's the dwelling place, you know, of those people who believe the Bible's divinely inspired. I actually have Gary Will's book right here in my mm-hmm. hand. Mm-hmm. Um, I intended to write about it. I I I ran out of space. Um, I don't know Gary Wells well, and I don't know his work well. It's called What Jesus Meant. Um, I read a portion of it yesterday. Um, it, it's, it's very short. I'll give it that. <laughs> <laughs> it's very short. I mean, and I don't, I, I gather, you know, I don't, I, don't, I gather Wills is a very serious writer. Um, 
I mean, you know, and I think, and he's writing into this sort of religious political debate um, of the present time, which mm-hmm. again is, a, in a sense, I hate to be cynical, but a somewhat lucrative market, you know, right. because well, obviously that's what we're talking about. Yeah, right? but I mean, Bush and his pals, you know, have kind of they've attempted almost to copyright, you know, certain certain teachings. Like, I guess we've got to bomb Iran, you know, because it, it's, it's written in the New Testament or mm-hmm. something. So, Wills is kind of writing into that marketplace. I, and I, I, since I haven't read the book, I don't, I don't really want to talk about it. I think it, it, it just seems a little bit naive. It's sort of naive in the other way, in the sense that Wills um, accepts uh, only what's in the Bible. And, um, you know, any interesting text is, uh, as some would say, you know, is, is not only the text itself, but what, but what is not in the text itself. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I got, you know, Wills is a is a Catholic, and I think I, I I have to say I'm personally quite fascinated by the story of Jesus and uh, what he meant in his time, and I think uh, Wills is trying to write about that. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I suspect you are going to get a lot of mail on this particular column. Um, uh, do you expect that? Well, I, you know, the mail we get these days is is electronic. Um, I, I, got, I have gotten a fair amount of uh, response. Um, Already? Already, mm-hmm. yeah. But it's, I'd say it's mostly been positive. I was very happy. You know, some people at Boston College. But, well, because, you know, what I'm really writing about is... Um, it, it just it kind of looks it's a kind of ugly profiteering in my view. And I guess I probably wouldn't put that in the paper. Mm-hmm. You know, but I... I guess as a Christian, I find it offensive. I guess if I wasn't a Christian, I hope I would find it offensive. Mm-hmm. All of it? <laughs> I mean, all, you know, we're talking about uh, the Da Vinci Code, the Jesus Papers, Home with God, Gary Wills, uh, misquoting Jesus. It's a it's a wide range of books from fiction to nonfiction, serious scholarship, uh, pop historianism. Uh, all of it is offensive. No, or? no, you caught me. I mean, the the, the stuff that I really came down on with the baseball bat uh-huh. um, the the Bajent book called the Jesus Papers which I think is fraudulent mm-hmm. and I'm I am very I mean my my superficial impression of misquoting Jesus which I did read it you know is, I, I just see it as exploitative mm-hmm. as for the fiction I mean no I mean fic, you know fiction's fiction if yeah. you can, I, I don't mean to be playing gotcha I just mean that it, it, there isn't an overriding question of timing right now in the culture as you observe um, and it does seem like it's interesting to observe that in, in the age of our fundamentalist president um, and, and the rise of fundamentalism within the culture, that Jesus indeed is dominating the bestseller list. This is, this is a, a, what did we just discuss, like six or eight titles here? I, to- I, I definitely agree with you, although we haven't... I mean, there's two things. I mean, the brown thing is... Is, is just unbelievable. I, I would submit to you, you know, if we had another 10 minutes, that, that the Brown, Dan Brown's novel, The Da Vinci Code, is actually having a, an impact as a nonfiction book. Mm-hmm. I can't claim that's true, but it's something I'd like to discuss in a way. Well, that's certainly what the church is afraid of. Yeah, I mean, the church is treating it like nonfiction. Mm-hmm. W- w- women, intelligent women, I mean, it, in a way, it's opened up discussion of this issue you and i have a friend named colin murphy who wrote a whole book about women in the bible Mm -hmm. that you know nobody really paid much attention to but you know dan i mean yeah the notion of of mary the mary cult mary worship Mm -hmm. um is is very interesting and i as i you know you and i sit in a sidebar conversation i am kind of 
interested in Brown. And I mean, that's a fascinating impact he's had mm-hmm. to to get get people talking about that. I mean, I um, and a positive impact, mm-hmm. frankly. Mm-hmm. But I I mean, no wonder he you know he's building a ten foot tall fence around his yeah. house. Well, he's uh, just a, another legal suit has been announced against him by a, uh, a Russian writer. Uh, it was announced yesterday. Um, similar charge, uh, stealing from an, uh, plagiarizing from an earlier work. Um, he's 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 out there, and it's not going to go away for him. Well, and the, I mean, of course, yeah, the movie mm-hmm. uh, will be big. And yeah, you're right. I mean, you're right about the. I mean, the the fundamentalists are. Are huge. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, mm-hmm. every four years they <laughs> they, they get do, huger. Yeah, they get huger. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, uh, Alex, being great column this week. Alex, being the Boston Globe columnist. Thank you for coming on Moby Lives. Finally, <laughs> Dennis. You know, you know, I love your your site and I love everything Moby does. So, thank you for having me. And that's it for this episode of Moby Lives. Thanks to our guest, the ever lovely Alex Beam. He spoke to us from his office at the Boston Globe in Boston, Massachusetts. Alex, by the way, is the author of the really terrific book, Gracefully Insane, The Rise and Fall of America's Premier Mental Hospital. It's the story of the McLean Hospital just outside Boston, which has been home over the years to some of your favorite poets. While I'm dishing out the thanks, of course, as usual, to our engineer, Andrew Steinmetz, and to the crew here at Melville House, that's Kelly Burdick, Becky Kramer, and publisher, Valerie Marians. If you want to write to one of us, you can reach us at moby at mobylives.com. If it's a letter to the editor, say so in the subject line, and if you keep it under a million words, we might even read it on the air. Meanwhile, we will be back next week. We hope you will, too. Until then, don't forget... That whale is out there, man. Yo me aspettavo, sai da te, una risposta come il fu, e invece niente, invece no. Un pugno in faccia era meglio, lo so. Io mi aspettavo, sai da te, qualcosa in più, qualcosa che non fosse una banalità. Fosse il solito scontato bla bla, ti faccio i complimenti e ti lascio con i tuoi gni 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 Gambe sottili, un bel sedere, d'occhioni azzurri, quasi blu, un seno enorme, un viso d'angelo tu, in ogni ambiente un figurone, sorriso, invidia e profusione, ma che fortuna quello lì, portarsi a letto una stangona così, ma la conversazione è si riduceva degni
rivista alla tv Dieci anni dopo forse di più Un calendario e soprattutto Solite pose, un cliché del gravù Ci dica che progettia Posare nuda ma perché È stato imbarazzante o no All'orizzonte ho fidanzato ora c'è una studiata pausa e lo hai seppellito di nie nie, nie 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 nie